I think you know the drill. You need to have your Bible open in front of you so that you can uh, follow along as we look through uh, three chapters of the book of Acts today, Paul's journey starting to Jerusalem. And I'm going to pray before we look at it together. Father, we want to thank you for the life of Paul. We thank you for the incredible example that he sets for us uh, of the importance of the gospel and faith in your son, Jesus. And Father, we want to pray now that you would help us, uh, help us to understand more what it is that you've done for us through your son and the lives that we ought to live. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a book published in the mid-1500s called... Uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Uh, John Fox started collecting accounts of people who had been martyred, who'd been Christians who'd been put to death simply because of their faith and their trust in Jesus. It's a rather amazing book and pretty chilling reading, I've got to say. Uh, there was one story that really stuck in my memory from uh, having looked through this book. And it was from the Reformation in England in the, around about the 1500s, so around about when Fox was actually putting together this collection of accounts. Two of the leaders of the Reformation, Hugh Latimer, and, uh, who was the Bishop of Worcester, and Nicholas Red Ridley, who was the Bishop of London, were put to death. The charge that they were put to death for was treason. Uh, Mary, the Queen, was Catholic, and these men were protesters, Protestants. And for that reason alone, they were put to death. If you go to Oxford today, you can actually still find they've marked the, the very spot where these men were put to death. And there's also a plaque up on the wall there uh, to, to show uh, what a terrible thing it was that happened here at that place. They faced their death with composure, uh, according to Fox anyway. Uh, they were tied back to back on a stake. Uh, wood and uh, grass and things were put around the base of the stake and was set alight. But as the flames were being lit, Latimer said this to, Rit to uh, Ridley. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a fire in England as I trust shall never be put out. Now, you've got to understand this. It's not that they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's not that they were stupid and got caught. They were committed to following Jesus. They were committed to preaching about him. And above all, they were committed to pay the price if needed. This morning we're going to be looking through these chapters of Acts 21, 22 and 23 and it's a big chunk but we're just dipping in. In these chapters we see Paul facing his harshest opposition so far. It starts with Paul nearly being beaten to death and it finishes with a plot to kill Paul. So how does Paul handle all of this? Well, Let's have a look and see. We pick it up this morning in chapter 21 and Paul has decided to go to Jerusalem. Uh, just before this in Acts chapter 20, Paul had left the elders in Ephesus and he told them 
that he didn't think he'd ever see them again, that he would never pass through Ephesus again. It seems that Paul's plan was to go to Jerusalem and then from there to go back to Rome and from there he wanted to take the gospel to Spain. Luke gives us a very detailed account of the trip back to Jerusalem and it tells us where he stopped and who he met on the way. And at one of the stops, they meet a man called Agabus. And if you've got your Bible, it's verse 10 of chapter 21. Uh, and Agabus is a prophet. He's, he has a message that he actually wants to deliver. And I love the way that this unfolds. If you've got it there, verse number 10. After we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down to, from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Paul's travelling companions start pleading with him that he shouldn't go to Jerusalem, that that's a mistake to do that. But look at what Paul says, verse 13. And Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul's not about to abandon what he knew he had to do. The thought of persecution, I'm pretty sure it didn't excite him, but he was ready to face that. It was about serving Jesus. It was about making sure that the gospel is being preached. People needing to hear this good news about Jesus. So he's committed to going to Jerusalem no matter what. When Paul finally makes it to Jerusalem, the disciples who are there are glad to see him. Uh, he's, uh, he's received well and he gives them news of what's been happening in the Gentile world. But the church leaders in Jerusalem also knew that Paul's presence could cause a few problems for them. There were Jewish people who clearly didn't like Paul and it seems that even some of the Jewish Christians, people who would consider themselves to be followers of Jesus, weren't too fond of Paul either. What they disliked most was that Paul seemed to have completely distanced himself from those Jewish traditions that were really at the heart of his life for so long. And there were other Jews there who, were, who would also become Christians who feel that Paul had given up too much of his Jewish background. Church leaders in Jerusalem suggest that Paul should undergo some Jewish purification rituals in the hope that that might quieten down some of these Jewish Christians and possibly even the other Jewish people. Um, so Paul agrees to do it. It's a fairly minor thing. It doesn't compromise anything that he believes. So he's happy to undergo these purification rituals. What he says to the church in Corinth kind of explains what it is that he's doing here. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says, For though I am free with respect to all, I've made myself a slave to all so that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so that I might win those under the law. To the weak, I became weak 
so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that I might by all means save some. All things to all people, Paul says. That's the principle that he wants to apply. He obviously won't compromise what he believes about Jesus. He won't compromise his morality, but he will compromise on those things that may help people to come to faith in Jesus. The way Paul saw it, if this was going to make it easier for me to preach the gospel, then let's go ahead and do these purification rituals. It just about finished the week of, of uh, purification when he was spotted by some Jewish people who'd come across Paul in his missionary journeys around the Mediterranean. They stir up trouble and before you know it, there's another riot. Paul seems to bring these about wherever he goes. Paul is dragged off and beaten. Their intention is pretty clear. They want this guy dead. That's the depths of their hatred for this man. The Roman commander heard what was happening, so he sent troops in and they restored order. They also rescued Paul from the situation that he was in. But the crowd are calling out, get rid of him. We want this guy dead. Again, sounds exactly what, what happened to Jesus, doesn't it? But before Paul is taken away, he asks if he can address the congregation that's gathered there to kill him. I, I, this is a bit that really bewilders me. All these people want him dead, and he says, maybe if I just say a few things, maybe that will help the situation. But I want you to imagine that you're in Paul's shoes. An angry group of people have just tried to beat you to death. You've been rescued from certain death. Would you want to talk to these people? What would you want to say to him, to them? Well, what Paul gives them is his testimony. He talks about his Jewish upbringing. He talks about the fact he encounters Jesus and his acceptance of Jesus. And he tells them about preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, none of this is going to pacify the crowd. They only start screaming all the more. Verse 22 of chapter 22. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. And then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. The commander locks Paul up in the barracks. He's determined to keep him under arrest so that he could actually get to the bottom of what's going on here. He eventually allowed Paul to be taken to the Sanhedrin, which is kind of like the Jewish court, to be questioned. Now, the commander doesn't send him there because he wants the Jews to handle this. He goes there because he wants to understand, the commander wants to understand what in the world is going on here. Why do they want this guy dead? Well, Paul caused another near riot in the Sanhedrin. Troops have to step in one more time and rescue Paul from the situation that he's in. But it wasn't going to end there. There's a group of Jews who decide Paul has to die. Chapter 23, verse number 12. They take a vow that they will not eat or drink until they have killed Paul. The Roman commander heard about this plot and arranged for Paul to be taken to appear before Felix, who is the governor of the area and is in Caesarea. Whenever I read this passage, I always wonder what happened to those guys who made the vow, because like, they seem pretty committed to what they were going to do here. 
they vowed that they would not eat or drink until Paul was dead. Now, given that it was going to be about five years before Paul died, I've kind of got a feeling that they might have either reneged on the vow or just laid low. But I can't help but wonder what happened to them. But again, when you read this account of Jesus heading back to Jerusalem, you kind of hear these bells ringing that you kind of heard this story before. I mean, who else do we know who is on their way to Jerusalem, who finds trouble when they get there, who's falsely accused by his own countrymen, someone who's arrested and appears before the Sanhedrin, someone who appears before the Roman governor, someone who had the, the crowds calling out away with him, someone that they plotted to kill. Any guesses? It's Jesus. I mean, he's almost reenacting what happened to Jesus and don't don't misunderstand, he's not pretending that he is Jesus. He's not claiming some space that he doesn't belong. He just knows that this is what following Jesus looks like. Luke, in his gospel, devoted a quarter of his book to Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, his arrest, his trial, his death and resurrection. And Luke now does the same thing with the book of Acts. He devotes a similar amount of space to Paul arriving in Jerusalem, his arrest and his trial. Again, don't misunderstand what what Luke's doing here. It's not that he thinks that that Paul is some Jesus-like figure. He wants to show that following Jesus, you may end up looking a little like Jesus in what will happen to you. When you read something like this, it's got to leave you wondering about your own commitment to Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, if push came to shove, do you think you'd be willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus? Jesus regularly told his disciples that there might be a cost to following him. He says this in John's Gospel, If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And again in Luke's gospel, and then Jesus said to, all, to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. They were timely words from Jesus. From what we know, the 11 disciples who were left after Judas disappeared, only one of them died of natural causes. John, we understand, died of old age on the island of Patmos. We don't know for certain what happened to the other ten because we don't have it accounted for in the Bible. But the traditions are that the other ten all died a martyr's death. Let's be clear, Jesus isn't suggesting that his followers should go out looking for trouble. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying be ready because the time may come when you do have to stand up for Jesus. And being willing to stand up for the sake of Christ, well, it really comes back to your understanding of what it is that Jesus has done for you. In a sense, your willingness to stand up for Jesus is a measure of how much you value what Jesus has done. If you know that Jesus died for you, then, like Paul, 
you should be ready to endure some hardship for the sake of Jesus. That was certainly the case for Paul. He knew what Jesus had done for him. He could face the prospect of his own suffering and he's willing to endure hardship, even death, for the sake of Jesus. So the take-home message is not, let's get out there and see if we can stir up some trouble. The take-home message is, make sure that you grow in your understanding of what it is that Jesus has done for you. Make sure that you value the life and the forgiveness that is yours because of what Jesus has done. Make sure that you value the message of forgiveness enough that you want others to come and trust in Jesus as well. And if along the way there is a cost for you, don't be surprised and remember that a far greater cost has already been paid for you. Deb's going to pray. Let's pray together in response to that. Dearest Father, we are so grateful for the life and forgiveness that we know because we trust in Jesus. Thank you that whatever we have done, you have been merciful to us. Help us to live lives that are marked by gratitude for your love. Father, we've been challenged again today by the story of Paul. Thank you that you used this man powerfully for the growth of your kingdom. Help us to trust that you can also use us to bring people into your kingdom despite our failings. We pray that we would be people who stand up for Jesus and be prepared to give an account for our hope, whatever that may cost us. Help us to speak boldly with grace and wisdom. And we pray for those who are currently suffering because they have been bold enough to speak throughout the world. Give them courage and peace. Thank you that you are growing your church throughout the world and that your spirit can change hearts in China, in Africa, in Russia and in Balmain. We pray that our church would always keep the main thing as the main thing and always be on about loving people and spreading the gospel. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're going to sing in response. Um,